Hi, this is Bill Rengel, host of My Quest for the Best, where we meet business, thought, and community leaders to discuss issues relevant to entrepreneurial growth. Joining me today is Dave Livermore. David Livermore is a Ph.D. who has written 10 books on global leadership and cultural intelligence, including Leading with Cultural Intelligence, and his newest release, Driven by Difference, which further addresses the practical ways to leverage diversity to fuel innovation. Dave Livermore is president of the Cultural Intelligence Center in East Lansing, Michigan, a visitor scholar at Yang Business School in Singapore, and has worked with leaders in more than 100 countries. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Bill. Dave, tell me, as you were growing up, because we're talking about diversity, did you have role models or someone who you look back at who helped raise your own awareness of this issue or the importance of it in some context? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks, Bill. In some regards, I grew up in a pretty isolated environment. Grew up in upstate New York in a very religious family where most of our social network all believed and looked like we did. But having said that, my parents were Canadian and moved to the U.S. just right before I was born. So there was some degree of even that just living across the border when we would travel over to Toronto, I would spend time with my cousins that I began to go, huh, they kind of have a different take on things and how they're being brought up in their schools and that as compared to I do. So, I, you know, that that was kind of dipping my toe in the water, wasn't exactly, you know, wide exposure to diversity of cultures and backgrounds, but, you know, the 101, they use different money, you know, there's dual language spoken, those kinds of things. Where I would say it, it came up more is when I went away to university and then began to do study abroad experiences, and then particularly as I got into my career and I was engaged in both doing research work and leadership development work, the more that I traveled globally, and particularly as I was trying to share with others kind of this uniform leadership principle approach to leadership, slowly but surely some people from different cultural backgrounds would pull me aside and say, you know, this isn't the only way to think about leadership or those kinds of situations. So I'd, I'd say for me, there wasn't one individual or one point in time. It's been a very gradual evolution. So my, my childhood wasn't disconnected to it, but in many regards, I find myself today with a social network and with a disposition on the world that's, that's quite different from how I started. The phrase you used was really interesting, the uniform approach to leadership, as if one set of behaviors, <laughs> one set of messages works across the board. Right. Um, what, tell me about your, your unfolding awareness as to how, especially coming from the United States, which tends to have kind of um, uh, a dominant leadership style and thinking that it can be applied in far more places than it actually can. How did you become aware of that professionally? Part of it was just simply listening and asking questions to people. So I, I can remember one point in time in particular when I was in South Africa and I just kind of laid out, I didn't use quite this strong a language, but something like here are the irrefutable laws of leadership or here are the universals. And I, there's actually some interesting research that says there are a few key kernels of truth in terms of things that are universal, but the longer list are things that are differences. And the things that I was listing were very U.S.-centric. You know, people want to be empowered. People want autonomy. Uh, people don't want someone breathing down their neck. And what I was really doing was projecting 
this is the way that I want to be led and this is what I think is most efficient. But, you know, a a good friend pulled me aside and that's when he kind of had that conversation with me of, you know, there is another way to do this. And he handed me a book that was kind of an Afrocentric perspective on leadership. And I'm going, whoa, this is not something I've read in Harvard Business Review. And that just kind of opened my mind into purposely seeking out the question more and more both as a practitioner and then eventually in my, my own graduate studies. As you were working with these different groups in different countries, I'm sure that broadened your view of the different ways that people can be effective in leadership positions. How did you take that back to inform the research that you were doing or the publications that you were creating or even the central body that was funding your trips and delivery in different countries? <laughs> oh, boy. You told me this was going to be a fun conversation, Bill. Boy, where to, be, where to begin on that? So for me, quite honestly, it was a very personal undoing because some of my own assumptions were unraveling, and that brought about some interesting conversations, even with my own employer, who were there by the ones that were funding the travel and the leadership models that they wanted to be taught. In terms of my own research, it did put me on this quest in my own PhD studies to ask, okay, what are the things about how leadership is developed differently in different places? And there can, can there be multiple ways that we can learn from? And, you know, maybe this is partly what we'll get into in terms of as we talk about our own research and work nowadays. But what began to happen is underrepresented groups in the U.S. were saying, well, you know, the same thing that they were saying to you in South Africa or Brazil is the same thing that could be said to you here in terms of some of us who are not really always invited at the table and where there's kind of a white male dominant assumption of how everybody wants to be led. So it it kind of opened me up to the so-called diversity literature and conversation, even within the U.S., saying how does one's gender or one's sexual orientation or one's color of skin also influence the assumptions we might make about how we lead and how we want to be led? It seems to be a very tricky balance for a large organization that has a diverse workforce that may not be you know, ideally balanced or representatively balanced based upon a population. But to be able to say, okay, there has to be some place where we say, this is how we operate, this is our culture here, versus we're going to be adaptable and malleable to everyone who speaks up and says, I feel offended by your directness. Absolutely. How do you help leaders sort that out? Well, I, I think you're, you're identifying one of the, the critical issues here. So you know, we've done some work with Google over the past few years, and that was, you know, it's hard to think of an organizational culture that's any stronger than Google's. And uh, as a quick aside, I'm not saying this in response to Google, but the assumption often is made when many people write about organizational culture that strong culture is always a valuable asset. And it might not be for the very reason you noted. Sometimes it prevents you reaching out to diverse customers as well as diverse personnel. So it, it could be effective, but it could also be a limiting factor. For Google's case, to be more specific about it, the, the pain point that they were feeling as they were growing their staff more and more internationally was, you know, everyone is pretty familiar, I'm sure you're, you're 
your listeners are well aware of the 20% factor within Google where large numbers of people across Google are encouraged to spend 20% of their time innovating anywhere within the company and might not have anything to do with your function and largely this is how we ended up with things like Gmail, Google Glass, etc. And so the pain point that they came to us on was saying, hey, we're having a challenge in the Asia-Pacific region when we tell our new employees, hey, and 20% of your time is to be devoted to any, innovate anywhere within the company, they'd kind of get these blank stares like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that time? And, you know, many of these would be cultures that we measure as being what we call uncertainty avoidant. That is, they don't really like things to be ambiguous. And what Google understood, to come way back to your question, was they would lose a core part of their Google culture if they just said, okay, you know what, we'll tell you exactly what to do in that 20% of our time. But to their credit, they also realized if they didn't have some adaptability, they were going to overlook what good innovation might look like within the skin of somebody who's more averse to ambiguity and uncertainty. So all that to say, I think it is a dynamic process that for sure, I think there are points in times when any company has to say, sorry, that this is the line here and we're going to uniformly say this is what we're trying to be about. But within that, there has to be a lot of flexibility of how it gets manifested. I imagine that even having that conversation could be bolstered by a few guidelines that have been helpful to at least, you know, show that the leaders or managers are recognizing that there are differences. They may not know exactly how to resolve them, but they want to show a keen interest and respect for those differences and in maybe an unstated way imply that there's value that they are welcoming but don't know quite how to tap into it. Yeah. Do you yeah, have exactly. any experiences or guidelines that might help a manager struggling with that today? Yeah. So let me, let me back into it with another specific example, which then will crystallize then some some specific guidance. So another Fortune 500 company, they had developed, here's what we want our leaders to look like. So let's come back to this. Is there a one-size-fits-all leadership approach? And this is a very global company who have actually, I think, done a great job in thinking through cultural intelligence and global perspective. And they had identified, you know, a list of five leadership companies they wanted every leader across this company around the world to have. They did a meeting that I was just sitting in on as a participant where they wanted to determine how are we going to develop this one specific leadership competency, which was act like an owner. Now, as somebody who's today engaged in entrepreneurial activities myself, I immediately resonated with this. Yes, I can understand why a massive company with over 100,000 employees wants their leaders to act like owners. The challenge was this global team who had gathered together to talk about how do we develop this leadership competency were working off a very different understanding of what act like an over even meant. So there were a couple individuals sitting at the table who worked in the Bangkok office who at the first break said to me, perhaps you can let our facilitator know that for us in our context, whether or not this is true, I'll leave it for others to figure out, but owners in Thailand, they said, are often perceived as people who are out playing golf all day, getting drunk on the golf course, and randomly calling in orders. And so then for me to somehow, they were saying, go back into the office and tell all my people they're supposed to act like owners, like, no, that's not going to work. So anyway, eventually we came back and we had a conversation with this group about, do we need to step back and even define what we mean by act like an owner? So to come way back to your question, I think 
the principle of what this company was after was absolutely appropriate and something that everyone could buy into. They wanted people to take risks as, as if it were their own money. They wanted people to spend the money as if it were their own. They wanted to be invested in things beyond just their own business unit. Um, but once they put very specific language and thought, oh, we all know what we mean by act like an owner, there was misalignment. And so the, the guidance that one might think about if they're in a management role where they're managing diverse teams is something that might feel extremely perfunctory is just going around at a meeting like that and say, everyone just write down one sentence of how you interpret the idea of act like an owner. What is it that you think we're actually trying to accomplish so that you can check for understanding right at the beginning rather than just kind of moving ahead with something that might feel like it's 101 um, in terms of aligning team expectations but might actually have you off on this very um, different trajectory if you don't take the time to clarify those expectations. And in this particular case, embarking uh, on that conversation is acting like an owner. So it has self-reinforcing. <laughs> self That's great. Uh, I didn't think it. Shoot, I wish I had thought of that at the moment, but yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> And to the credit of the one who was facilitating the, the meeting, he immediately was like, ah, yeah, of course, thank you for that, you know. So you know, one of the things that we really underscore in this whole idea of developing cultural intelligence is it's not that we're mistake-free. Mistakes are often one of the best ways that we develop our learnings in this. It's how do I not continue to make the same mistake again and again and, and use those as ways to create insights. Very true. Can you expand upon... The phrase you use in the book, driven by difference, diversity of diversity. I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth for a bit here. On the one hand, I celebrate the fact that diversity has become so much broader than just black versus white or German versus Korean to say, hey, let's, let's look at diversity in all kinds of ways, diversity of work styles, diversity of personalities, diversity of age groups, etc. The challenge is, as you know from what we talk about in that section of the book, if you make diversity mean everything, at some point it starts to mean nothing. So it's kind of, okay, you have a different zip code than I do, therefore we're diverse. So part of what I think has to be done if companies are really going to leverage diversity to drive innovation is we have to be a bit more concrete about how it is we're measuring diversity and to realize that you and I having different first names is not the same as you and I being brought up in very different cultural backgrounds, etc. So what we're really looking for are the differences that make a difference, not just differences for the sake of being different. Yeah, and you know where I would go with that is what we find in terms of the brain research, the two kinds of differences that most immediately make a difference on how people engage in the workplace are First of all, visible diversity, so you know, we can pretty much figure out what that means. Skin color, size, age, it might be religion if, if dress is a piece of that. It could even be things like family and sexual orientation, depending on photos and that that might be around there, but visible diversity. And then the second one being underrepresentation. So anytime that I'm less than 15% of the majority of everyone else on my team. So it might be I'm the only Southerner among a whole group of Northerners, or I'm the only marketer and I'm on a whole team of engineers. So anytime when that balance is skewed, that, that becomes significant. Where 
to come to your point where our interest has been both in the research side and then as we do training and consulting with companies is saying, what are the differences that make the most impact in creating innovation? And so we actually have a, an inventory that we use that measures people's value differences. And I don't mean value as in good or bad, but just preferences for like direct versus indirect communication or top down versus more flat approaches to leadership. And then to be able to more concretely measure it that way. Because as one individual recently said for me from a large pharmaceutical firm that we work with, he said, hey, you know, people feel great and think that our senior leadership is diverse because they look at it and it's very colorful. And, you know, he was, as a person of color himself, he was grateful for that. But he said, on the other hand, you know, there's an unusually high percentage of individuals on that leadership team who are all Ivy League educated individuals. And so in some ways, they have far more in common with each other, even with having um, different color skin than, you know, if you had two people who looked exactly the same, but one person didn't go to college and somebody went to Ivy League. So part of how we get through that whole diversity of diversity is to create a more concrete way of measuring people's cultural value preferences and then to use that to say, okay, where do we have gaps? Where are we you know, potentially going to have a blind spot because everybody is kind of oriented toward this way on a continuum? For example, direct communicators as compared to we don't have anyone who tends to be a more indirect communicator and how might that influence um, who's going to speak up when we ask what does act like an owner mean or whatever the scenario might be. What occurs to me is that in different teams and within different operational fields within a large company, there might be areas where it's more effective and beneficial to have a narrower band yeah. of diversity than a wider band uniformly throughout. Does your research back that up? It, it does. I mean, for the most part, we would certainly say for the company as a whole, the more diversity you have, the more immediate insight it's going to give you into a diverse customer base or diverse set of users, clients, whatever term one uses. However, I think particularly, as you said, Bill, within a specific function, it's no surprise that you usually see people in marketing more tightly clustered in one place as compared to people in engineers. And, you know, a concrete example of that, I referenced a few moments ago this idea of uncertainty avoidance when I was talking about the Google challenge. So this is a way of measuring the degree to which people are you know, fly by the seat of their pants, so to speak, or really just kind of, you know, plan everything out in predictability. We were doing a session not too long ago with a group of captains from Emirates Airline, and they all scored very high on uncertainty avoidance, meaning they prefer things to be very predictable and planned out. And they, before we had really unpacked what this idea meant, they said, how come on this one, we don't have any diversity and we're all clustered together? And I'm like, thank you. I'm glad that as pilots of an airline, you're all very uncomfortable with uncertain and want to have things as planned out as possible. So I think you're absolutely right that a particular function um, can certainly predict it. Where you have to be careful is that to the very point you made before in terms of strong corporate culture, this is where it could be a liability is sometimes a strong corporate culture also will prevent from people having more diverse value sets being hired into it. And then as a result, it tends to be a myopia to not having an opportunity to really benefit from the innovation that can emerge from having more diverse value sets there. In the book, you talk about an anecdote of 
two executives talking in the gym, and one of them says that they are heading off to a diversity session. And the, his friend says, oh, my gosh, I'd rather have root canal. <laughs> right. How do you cope with people who are presenting the phrase that I've not heard before is diversity fatigue, which could sometimes be called just resistance to change or resistance to being challenged, yet it could really shut down funding. Why would a manager take funds out of a budget in order to pay for something like this when it will take away what that manager has, which is control and centralized power? Yeah, and I particularly find this issue across North America and Western Europe, maybe not quite as much in other places around the Europe, around the world yet, but the anecdote that you recounted is actually far more indicative of what I hear in the trenches from people when asked about their feeling about diversity initiatives than not. And this is not just coming from majority cultures. There'll be individuals who are, you know, so-called minorities or underrepresented too, who are like, uh, it, it didn't do anything. And so I would think the, the part of the reason for that term of diversity fatigue that I use is that people have been through the training, they handed their certificate to HR, okay, you know, I, I now know who I'm biased against, or I heard the rant about racism, etc., but they haven't actually seen how it's making any difference in the job that they're doing. So I think... I think managers are wise to step back and say, wait a second, just checking off the box and making sure that we do a cultural sensitivity workshop or a diversity day may not be a very good use of our funds. Instead, we need to ensure that we're actually approaching this way in a way that truly does make people feel more included and as appropriately as oriented on actual skill building rather than just awareness that is what tends to be the box-ticking orientation that comes with diversity fatigue. So I think it's this, this delicate balance of saying, in part, I think we as managers and companies need to be committed to, to diversity just because it is the right thing to do. Um, and there are reasons for that from a social imperative. But there's also a very compelling business case that can be made for it. But it has to be done with an intentional strategy, just like we would say about most everything we do in business. So a lot of times senior executives want to make sure that they are protecting the status quo. And the argument that will ultimately enrich the company's ability to understand their target market, to bring about greater productivity and effectiveness and cost savings within their own company, is understanding what's happening inside the minds and and experiences of people who are come from more culturally diverse backgrounds. Hmm. How do you overcome that hurdle, that hump, that disconnect that a lot of managers are experiencing, especially when there are so few metrics in place that reward managers for taking this risk, for taking time out of a busy schedule in order to introduce topics that, if not given sufficient time and support to take root within the organization, might not really yield the results that are promised. Well, I think in part embedded in your question is also what I would propose as the solution, that um, the absence of metrics is one of the reasons there is a challenge with it. So those metrics need to be built in. And I don't mean that, okay, it's one more thing of shaking our finger now of shame on you if you aren't doing this, but we should be able to measure at least 
indirectly, implicitly, are there some kinds of outcomes that are are performing differently than before. So, for example, in our research on cultural intelligence, we can actually assess someone's cultural intelligence before and after they might go through a training initiative. And then there are all kinds of outcomes we can promise individuals and organizations based upon increased levels of cultural intelligence. So I think, you know, building it into performance appraisals that the way that one works effectively and takes in diverse perspectives is something that's going to be factored in for a company to begin mentioning it when somebody is promoted or hired, if they have skill set in this area, that it's a high value for what the company is looking for. And then collectively for the company to begin measuring it as we're starting to see, though granted more because of external pressure, but from many of the tech industry firms in Silicon Valley who have awakened the idea to okay, we have to pay more attention to this. And in some regards, there, the tech industry is, is where it becomes hardest to make a case because, hey, they seem to be doing quite well without it. I mean, they're, they're innovating real well. Um, but if you look down the road of saying, do they run the risk of becoming obsolete if they don't continue to build in diversity of viewpoints and values, um, that's where it becomes a greater challenge. So I think it be it needs to be approached as more of a business challenge and imperative, rather than just being seen as a soft skill um, cost center. And that there that then immediately builds into it a way for managers to see a greater level of both urgency and support to address it. See, one of the things that I find interesting about your central theme is that you are are attaching and using the case of the, or the factors of diversity to build a compelling case for adding value through innovation. And innovation is a really, you're taking two difficult terms, combining them together, and looking to create even more value when people are simply looking to establish, do we have a diverse workforce? How do we assess that? How do we manage that? How do we increase that? And what ways will increase it just to create a, a more valuable asset of a company? And now innovation says, how do we go beyond what we were doing yesterday into something more powerful, creative, beneficial to our customers and to our core staff today? How do you get people to look beyond in two different areas at the same time? And I guess before you do that, talk about what you mean by innovation from your perspective. So for me, innovation is, uh, well, it certainly includes the iPhones, space travel, those kinds of things. I'm as interested in and see as much value in the incremental innovation. So the kinds of things that just improve processes for the user. So, you know, kind of classic design thinking 101. What are a user's pain points and have I helped develop a process or a system or a product that somehow alleviates those pain points. So for me, it's it's anything that makes a, a process better. Well, it certainly includes disruptive innovation. I don't think it has to be disruptive to still apply to this. In terms of the connection between the two, part of it was that it simply emerged from the research. So if I, let me first come at it from a research perspective. Our, my colleagues and I at the Cultural Intelligence Center, we had been doing a series of studies with a number of multinational companies, and we, we found some troubling information given that our kind of spotlight is on this attention of cultural differences in that. We found that homogeneous teams actually outperform diverse teams when it comes to innovative outputs in that, 
when their cultural intelligence levels are low. But when cultural intelligence levels are raised, we found that the diverse teams were way outperforming the homogeneous teams at least three to one. And so for me, it started to answer your previous question about how do you get managers to even spend time looking at this and saying maybe one of the things that we need to do is help managers see that not only is diversity a valuable and important thing to address, but that as you address it, it also helps you tap this built-in resource that every company is clamoring to have, how do we foster better innovation? And, you know, in part, too, maybe it's, it's a bit of the cynic in me, but I've, I've been at so many conferences speaking and listened to other diversity proponents get up and say, diversity leads to innovation, diversity leads to innovation. And, you know, you watch the people sitting around you rolling their eyes going, well, not necessarily. And, you know, given that we now had research that said no diversity by itself doesn't necessarily lead to innovation, um, it has to be linked with improved cultural intelligence and a strategy for doing it. So that was a very circuitous way of getting to your question, Bill, of saying that the thinking in terms of linking the two together was saying it's not enough to just hire a more diverse workforce and have these metrics that say, now do we have more women, more people of color, however you're going to define diversity there. Of course, that's a first starting point. But have we also then figured out a way to tap that diversity to actually fuel this whole idea of innovation. And I think that it's really important because the research connects with what people have understood empirically. In one way, if any of us have ever had a roommate, not to mention a partner or spouse, we know that two different opinions on how to make dinner or how to spend a Friday night doesn't automatically lead to a more creative output. It's like sometimes you're at an impasse or you start calling each other names or whatever else. And so... You know, I think you're exactly right. If we take it from our personal lives or to what we've all experienced, hey, let's just be honest. There's a simplicity to working with people who view the world the same way I do, who want to be led the way I want to be led and vice versa. But, you know, then we miss out if that's the only piece that's there. So, See, the other point is, is very interesting is that it's not just hiring them hiring a diverse workforce or hiring people with a different perspective, you've got to integrate that into the culture. You've got to make sure that you're supporting, developing, nurturing the skill sets of those people so that everyone has an equal chance to contribute the perspectives, skills, and insights that they bring to the corporation. Having them be present is just step one of a long process, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it, we keep seeing discouraging case studies of that out of, in particular, the tech sector where more diverse people have been hired in and then end up leaving because they're saying, well, my, my viewpoint wasn't listened to at all. So it's going to take an intentional strategy to make sure that people from the dominant culture aren't the ones whose idea always reigns the day. So since you've been studying this from a diversity perspective, I'm really interested in some of the surprises you may have found that might be obstacles to innovation that people are overlooking because they just don't have the right group in the room. In other words, they don't have people with enough bandwidth or, or variety of perspective in order to understand a problem that they're facing. Would you consider that to be one of the hidden obstacles to innovating when you're trying to solve a business problem but don't have enough diversity in the room? And if so, what are some others that you might also have encountered through your research or consulting work? I think the one you named is definitely there. And 
there's a lot of research that supports the longer an individual has been leading a company and the longer a company has experienced success, the more susceptible they are to what you just said. So kind of just moving forward with, uh, we know what we're doing here. We're good. These people don't understand us and may miss out. And, you know, I, I hate to use Kodak as a non-example, given that I grew up in Rochester, New York, but there's all kinds of stories about people who were speaking up to talk about the importance of paying attention to digital photography, and it kept being squelched as, no, we're going to remain to the tried and true use of film. So we don't have to look far to see examples of what happens when diverse perspectives aren't sought out. I think another one is, is, as your listeners will pick up by now, my talking out of both sides of my mouth again, Diversity, but there still has to be some shared objective that we're running at. So at some point, we do have to agree to acquiesce to, okay, this isn't necessarily the way I would do it, but we're all trying to charge toward that goal. So there does have to be some shared understanding and some some norms that are developed in that way. Maybe one other uh, to think through, though, is as soon as I say that, then to come back and realize that the way some of those norms are manifested is going to look very different for people based upon the way they've been socialized in their upbringing. So to be more concrete about that, I mean, almost without fail, when I'm introduced to speak at an internal event um, from a company, they will say something like, you know, hey, cultural understanding and global leadership, these are important capabilities for us. Of course, we know we have the overarching values as a company that are, you know, respect, integrity, ethics, etc. And I have to somehow gently follow that up with saying, but bear in mind that the way that you express respect and your interpretation of ethics may vary drastically based upon the cultural background that you come from. So I think that this can sometimes feel like um, really simplistic, like Really, you just need to have everyone go around the table and say what they mean by act like an owner, but it's some of those surprising subtleties that often throw a team way down the road onto something that they missed early on because they didn't have clarity about what was going on in the first place. It's interesting because I see it as the opposite of simplistic because it really looks to find the differences that help people feel safe that help people feel trusted, that help people feel like they're able to succeed within a group. And that is often very powerful and advanced communication skills that I think that as more and more leaders reach for, they're going to find more and more success. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the example of that that I often use is, you know, I do think respect is a great kind of common ground that we ought to all share. But to the very point you just made, you know, for me growing up in the Northeast, respect means shoot straight with you. If I have a problem with you, I mean, be nice, be diplomatic, but don't beat around the bush. But for 70% of the world, respect is more couched in let's save face. I should, I respect that you're intelligent enough, Bill, that I should never have to tell you what we both know is already going on as a conflict. Instead, let's harmoniously save face. So, you know, it, you're right. There's a whole lot. Once you go beneath the surface of, oh, we just need to respect each other, there's a complexity that's, that's involved with it. I'm thinking that a book title for this at some point down the road might be, you know, gaining the most value from diversity or subtitle, what to do after the the kumbaya stops. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> I, I was just thinking of, you know, one other potential blind spot that's overlooked when you don't have diversity at the table as it relates to innovation. Uh, a lot of companies have grabbed onto Jeff Bezos' mantra at Amazon of the empty chair policy, saying at all of our important strategic meetings, we need an empty chair that represents the customer. And the blind spot is if every, of all the rest of us who are actually physically sitting around that table think the same way and value the same thing, I may entirely miss what the customer's viewpoint is and how they would speak up about this proposed innovation. Can you talk about an example where you've worked with a group of senior leaders to help them deepen their skill sets in this area, and it's, it's changed the course of how they operate internally in some measurable way? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there, there are a number, uh, and probably the place that our work most naturally finds a home is in the senior leadership space. So I'm, I'm thinking in particular of uh, a, a large uh, Fortune 50 company that is kind of in the, the food, hospitality, beverage uh, world, and top 3,000 of their leaders have all been through cultural intelligence training, and that they're already a very global organization, but what they found they lacked because they're so large is a common um, language that they all shared for how they were thinking about hiring, how they were thinking about vetting new business innovations and that. So one of the things that we did was do some executive sessions with them initially, but then also help them in their pipeline process for how they think about hiring or recruiting, and then beginning to build the cultural intelligence and innovation strategy together all across all the divisions of the company. And, you know, they reported a couple years after doing this that they were seeing significant um, increase in a number of different things they were measuring from employee engagement to lessening turnover to the amount of time it took for someone to get up and running when they were on an expat assignment, etc. I would never be um, – so uh, myopic is to say that the cultural intelligence work we did with them was the only thing that contributed to that. There are obviously other things they were doing as well, um, but they self-reported that the cultural intelligence work was a significant variable in terms of, of what created that growth in the bottom line, but also in some of those softer areas that they were measuring together as a company. So, yeah, that, that would be one example of what's there. Because really what you can credit are not necessarily the individual decisions, but influencing the policy and in turn creating a safer environment for that potential to flourish. Yeah, you're right. And because a lot of companies, this one included, do a number of employee satisfaction surveys, they began to build in some metrics there to see is there a change in the way that people feel, particularly if they're from a demographic that they were particularly interested in looking at that was underrepresented in the company. And they did see um, steady growth in the ratings of people feeling heard, engaged, and like they could bring their diverse selves to work and actually have it be a part of what the company was looking for rather than something that was just tolerated. You talk about one of the enemies of innovation are distractions, and that cuts across every executive and manager's desk and screen these days on whether the big screens or small screens. And it's, it's a crucial aspect of just being able to focus to get things done individually that kind of cuts across the cultural uh, divides. What other areas do people need to, um, to focus on 
And how big of an issue is this from even your most recent um, examples and working with companies? My observation is, is that it really hasn't changed much unless we're saying that it's just gotten more and more demanding. The number of opportunities for distraction, <laughs> the number of ways that we can be reached and have our attention diverted from important issues. Right. I think about it myself personally because the, the number of ways that people can now contact us, it just keeps growing. One way it you know, allows you greater efficiency, another way it deters it. So in many regards, I, I think you're right. I think the kinds of things that your listeners see in their inbox and read in Fast Company and Inc., et cetera, day in and day out are the same things that apply to what we're talking about here. You know, do I turn off the ping for a while? Do I focus? Where we find it becomes even more challenging is the more that you're working with a diverse group of people, and especially if it's globally diverse. So now you're dealing with different time zones. Now I have the distraction of, oh, I've got to get back to this person right away because they're about to go on Chinese New Year or they're about to start into Ramadan and I'm not going to have as easy access. And so I think it's, you know, at the risk of pointing out the obvious, I think it's in the same way as it is with the distraction of technology. We have to just become very intentional to create some margin um, for focus on discipline, thinking about innovation, and know there are going to be times that my great plans for the day when I was going to focus on it are going to go sideways because of something I didn't anticipate happening. But this is one of those I think it's pretty hard to train um, in terms of broadly speaking that an individual leader has to take on the self-discipline to really manage it. But then companies have to be careful too not to send mixed messages and say, we, we want you to shut off the email. Hey, why didn't you respond to me when I sent you an email mm -hmm. within an hour? Do you think that this goes hand in hand with sort of the, the mindfulness thrust that's being more widely accepted these days in, in corporate environments? It absolutely is. And without getting too technical on your listeners, uh, our cultural intelligence model has four different capabilities that we measure, and one of those four, the technical term is metacognition, which is essentially getting at that whole idea. To what degree do we step back for a minute, make sense of what's going on, take control of kind of our plans and our thoughts, and then engage with it. And to a large degree, uh, this book, Driven by Difference, was oriented around saying, how do we make practical what metacognition and mindfulness looks like when you're dealing with a culturally diverse team? David, how about for yourself? What other practices, habits, maybe even tools do you use to help you stay on track, focused, and productive with all the different demands on your time? Yeah, I, I am obsessed with productivity and with wanting to retain control of my schedule, which says something about my own both personality type and probably cultural background. Part of it, in the same way that we would say that a company has to figure out when do they adapt to a culture and when do they don't, one of the things that I've started to give myself license to is uh, certain times saying no to certain invitations or requests for someone, even knowing that I do run the risk of, so let me be more specific. So I, I might be in an Asian context, I'm jet lagged out of my mind, I'm invited out for a very long dinner. There are certain situations where I know it's going to be an offense if I don't go to that dinner. There's other times when I know, given what else I have to do and I have to be fresh tomorrow morning, I'll run the risk of I'm really sorry, I'm not feeling well, I'm not going to be able to go out for dinner tonight. So for, for part of that has been, as someone who harbors far too much guilt in my life, letting some of that go, and practices of mindfulness and meditation that I do personally, 
for me, and I know this is very personal, not going to be true for everyone, but I make sense out of the chaos in my life by writing. And I don't mean writing books. I just mean in my journal, getting it down on paper, figuring it out, sorting it through. And that crystallizes a lot of things for me. And I'm a runner and uh, I, running is what clears my head. So it's thankfully one of those things I can take with me pretty much anywhere I go. And um, I'm amazed at how often I'm feeling entirely debilitated by all the things that are pressing on me. And then just, even if it's a brief run um, out in fresh air for me, just clears my mind and gives me creative insights as well as just return to focus to what I need to, to put the most attention on. And with all the travel that you've done, is there a particular set of habits or rituals that you've been able to find that helps you stay fresh and aware while traveling through different time zones and different cultures? Uh, I confess that the older I get, the harder time I'm having with jet lag. So unfortunately, I don't have great anecdotes on that other than the ones that people already hear about of resetting your watch as soon as you get on the plane and that. For me, it is retaining some of those consistent habits like journaling, almost daily, if at all possible, even if it's only like two minutes in the morning, here's what I'm thinking about for today. Here's my number one thing I want to accomplish today and uh, trying to run. It's also keeping, you know, a, a very close group of confidants near me. And whether that means people that I'm texting or calling or people that I'm having lunch with and, you know, intentionally bringing some diversity into my own social network to give people license to just kind of say to me the tough stuff. What are the things that seem to you to be out of alignment in my life as a leader and the things I'm trying to work through as, as a, a family person as well as just an individual human being? And for you, when you talk about journaling, is it always pen on paper? Is it, can it be pen on paper or keyboards? Or do you prefer uh, tapping on a, a phone? What is it that works, and, and is there any variation to that that's allowed? Or does it have to be a certain way in order for it to work well for you? For me, it's pen and paper. Now, I, I don't write professionally pen and paper. I definitely do that on a keyboard. But in terms of the journaling I'm talking about, I had, there's something about the tactical process. I wouldn't say it's a deal breaker, but for, for the most part, it's definitely pen and paper. Now, I, I talk to other people who feel 180 degrees the other way on that. So for me, this is definitely not a, that's the only way it will work. There is some interesting research, and this is not my field of study at all, that says actually writing something out on paper, there's, there's a different process in the brain that is engaged that just forces you to be a little bit slower about it. So um, mm -hmm. food for thought. Dave, you've shared so many interesting ideas and food for thought in this conversation. So I want to thank you for helping raise our awareness around how strong organizational culture builds upon having diversity in both visible and non-visible ways how the diversity of diversity cuts across a lot of those differences that people observe, but really leads to focus on the ones that are meaningful. The importance of doing an inventory so that you understand what the cultural value differences are within an organization. How to overcome some of the tips you share for overcoming some of the fatigue that people feel around diversity discussions and diversity training that is just, you know, very, very shallow because it does, when used correctly, as you pointed out, build a compelling business case to have those different ideas, insights, and backgrounds brought to bear. You've reminded us of so many things. So I want to thank you again for sharing your perspectives on my quest for the best.
Thank you, Bill. And it's my hope that all of us will just slow down that natural impulse that we have to view different as wrong or inferior and instead to stop and go, okay, you don't see things the way I do. Is there something I can learn from that and hopefully have that reciprocated? And from a leadership perspective, when I walk into a room, particularly if it's a room of my own team, to look around and say, are there diverse people seated around the table in all the ways that we've talked about diversity in that? And if there are, am I creating ways for those people to feel engaged and for us to benefit from it? And if there aren't, what can I do to begin making some headway to change that? So thanks so much for your excellent questions, interest in this topic, and the chance to share a little bit about our work.